Well, if you'll look at Hebrews chapter 11, we're going to work through the chapter this morning and then we'll continue into chapter 12 in the coming weeks. But specifically, this is kind of known as the uh, Hall of Faith. And we're going to look at why maybe that's a mistitle of the chapter. But before we get into the chapter, one of the struggles about preaching the gospel and even just as a Christian in general is that the, the gospel is so simple. It's, it's easy for people to understand the data, the story, what's, what's most important about it. But the hard part is trying to understand the depths of our own sin and how the gospel can still save us while being sinners. And sometimes sin at a very high and deep level or for long periods of time. The gospel feels great in the beginning. It's like a fresh new beginning. When you first believe it, you understand that your sins have been forgiven, you've been cleansed, and now you're in this new relationship. It's almost like starting a new relationship, uh, whether it's a new friendship or even a new dating relationship when uh, two people come together and they're excited about their future, they're excited about getting to know each other, and really they're blank slates. When you meet someone new, you don't know anything about them. If you've got no prior history, you know nothing about them. And so there's this anticipation and excitement about this being fresh and new. And the gospel can be this. But as life goes on and it's dirty and there's struggle and there's failure, the freshness of the gospel can go away because what you thought you had, a clean slate, is now dirty again. What you thought you had was a fresh start is now muddied where you started this new relationship with God. Now it seems like you have failed your end of the bargain. You failed your end as it comes to relationships to God. And a lot of people feel this. The longer you're saved, the longer you're in a relationship with God, the more you're going to feel this. And the more that you look at your Bible and the more you read what's required of believers the more you will feel this absolute sense of failure where your name would never show up in the hall of fame or hall of heroes in the Bible. Well, this is what makes the gospel radical, hard. It's very hard to believe. It's very hard to allow the gospel to be what it is because it's completely opposite of who we are, opposite to our nature, opposite to our tendencies. We don't love people this way. With unconditional grace, no one does. No one can give someone absolute unconditional grace all of the time. It's impossible to do. It's our ambition. We also don't love an unconditional love. We would, we would make that our aim and our desire, but it's just not how we love because if someone hurts us enough, we can turn on them. Our hearts can become hardened and bitter. So when we are told that there's unconditional love and unconditional grace, It's really hard to embrace that the longer you look at your life, the more you realize how much of a failure you truly are. We want to feel deserving of God's love. We want the respect of God. We want God to look at us and say, well done. You are a commendable person. Your life is a commendable life. And unfortunately, when I meet unbelievers and they find out that I'm a pastor, they immediately assume that I am this respectable person, that I am somebody that uh, has been anointed with some kind of special uh, blessing from the Holy Spirit. And I somehow now have a superpower and pastors are not superheroes and we definitely don't have superpowers. 
Uh, we are human beings. Christians are not superpowers. Uh, somehow we've been duped into thinking that the moment you become a believer, you now have superpowers, that you can now do something that no one else in the world can do. And you have the ability to refrain from all kinds of temptation. Well, that is true. You do have ability now to say no. And you are, you do have the spirit that lives within you. But somehow we feel like it tips the scales in our favor where we're just not going to struggle like the rest of the world's going to struggle. And then you struggle. And how do you explain this struggle that you now have? Well, this leads me to Hebrews. This is why I've been spending time in Hebrews. How do I minister to my own heart? How do I minister to the hearts of those who are my brothers and sisters? When we look at our constant failing, when we realize that we're not the husbands and wives we're supposed to be, we're not the employees we're supposed to be, we're not the siblings that we're supposed to be. I, I wrestle with my own children's depravity where they are fighting their own selfishness, their own self-love, their own ambition, because it just tramples over their siblings. And it's, it's not because they chose to be this way. It's because they're this way by nature. The natural bent of men and women is to be in on ourselves. We want what's best for us. Even in our attempts of gratitude and attempts at love, we can often give love because it makes us feel better and it makes us look better. We can give charity and grace because it makes us look better. Oh, look what a nice person that is, or look what a kind person that is. That is still selfish ambition. It's for your improvement and your betterment. It's really hard to just do it because it's the right thing to do which is you know, something I'm trying to instill in my own children and in, my, in our, my own home, where we learn to love unconditionally, where we don't love because we're going to get something in return. It's the reflection of the radicalness of the gospel. The gospel is an unconditional message that just cannot be controlled by our actions. So here's what I mean by this. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 12. I'm sorry, I'll have to uh, verse 11. Chapter 11, verse 1, the writer says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. The whole chapter is uh, summarizing how the people of old, Old Testament, the Old Covenant, they were looking for a promise of a new covenant, uh, someone to come, and that's where their faith was in. Their faith was in that which was to come. <clears throat> so that's what <clears throat> excuse me. the whole chapter is about. So look at verse 2. For by it, now the faith and the promise, okay? So we know this promise to be the gospel. The, we are told that the promise was given in Genesis 3.15, Adam and Eve, that the seed of Eve was going to come and fix what they had destroyed. And then Paul tells us that the gospel was preached to Abraham. Gospel meaning good news of redemption through a Messiah. So we know that early on that the Old Testament saints were saved in the same way we are. This is the proof. This is a proof of how they were saved. They were saved by faith. But notice what he says here. I, this is what has just caused so much excitement about this chapter. And I'm so intrigued by what's going on here in this chapter. He says this, for by it, the faith in the hope of the promise of the covenant, for by it, the people of old received their commendation. The people of old received their commendation. Well, if you know anything about the rest of this chapter, it's gonna, we're gonna go through it. We start, he starts naming names and, and their actions and what they did by faith. 
But I want you to understand that he starts the preface so, so many times we take this chapter and we point to their actions and see we need to be like Abraham and Isaac and Rahab and Samson and David. We need to be like Abel and Enoch. Those are the names that are mentioned. And then we look at their actions and say, see, look how courageous Abraham was when he took Isaac up to sacrifice him. And look at Sarah, how she trusted God in order to have a child in such an old age to fulfill the promise of salvation for all people. I mean, the the salvation of the human race was promised to a woman who was literally, Hebrew says, she was about to die. And it rested on her. Of course, when she chuckles, it, most people would chuckle. Why would you give a, a, a lady that's in almost a hundred years old the, the promise of salvation? Because she's going to be the one who's bearing this child. So we look at all of these crazy stories and immediately we, we give them commendation for what they did. The writer of Hebrews says, I'm not giving them commendation for what they did. I'm giving them commendation for who they believed in, the promises they believed in. The commendation is for their faith. It's not for their actions. In other words, we can say the commendation is for their faith, not their faithfulness. Not for what they did, but for who they believed in. So as we look through some of these, I just want to point out that the writer of Hebrews has to point to their faith And there are some small actions that they accomplished, but they accomplished them because they had faith in God, not because they were a faithful person or that they had some goodness that dwells within them. The reason the whole chapter was written, and of course, just an overview of Hebrews within one sentence, there are people who are wanting to go back to the law and obey their own righteousness to gain favor with God and gain entrance into the kingdom. That's what they want to do. And the writer of Hebrews is taking an entire book to prove to them that Jesus is the only source of hope and the only entrance into the kingdom. You cannot come into a relationship with God. You cannot be absolved of your sins. You cannot have righteousness unless it is through Jesus. He even says it. We're going to look at it in Hebrews chapter 12. He goes, without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And he says it pretty blatantly, but it can't mean our own holiness only. It can't mean that. Because if it did, then that would be salvation by works. So he writes an entire chapter and summarizes the uh, wonderful stories of the Bible. And he says it's by faith that God commended them for what they did. So just we're not going to read through it, but I just want to read through some of the people. So he speaks of Abraham multiple times, the different things that Abraham did moving from the the homeland that he was in and then uh, giving birth to Isaac and then taking Isaac upon multiple times. But here's what we need to learn about Abraham in the midst of this. So Abraham is asked to leave. He believes God. He's, he's a moon worshiper. He's a pagan at the time. He's not a child of God. The gospels preached to him. He believes it. And then he starts to become the follower of God. (laughs) And, in this time frame between when he's asked to leave the desert and when he finally dies, he has so many mistakes. And I wouldn't even say mistakes. I would say just absolute blatant disobedience from God. Twice, not once, but twice he lies about his wife. You know, he has this beautiful woman that he loves. Oh, clearly he's married to her for so many years and he knows that she's beautiful. Even in her old age, she's beautiful. 
And yet he is unwilling to die for her. So when he goes to Egypt, he lies, says, hey, I just want you to tell them that you're my sister. And he does it twice. And then once he receives the promise from God, he doesn't believe it. He's like, no, no, there's no way. I'm too old. She's too old. And so instead of taking God at his word, like most of us do, he decided to put things in his own hands. And even through the recommendation of his own wife, Sarah, he has a child with another woman. And then he says, God, okay, why don't you fulfill your promise through this child? So he didn't like God's will. He wanted to do it his way. And yet in the midst of all of that, he still had faith in God. He still was trusting in his promises. But he's a fickle, sinful, deceitful man. And what does God commend him for? God commends him for his faith. In the midst of how wretched this man was, he still believed in the promise of God. And God commended him for it. And then you look at his son Isaac, right? Isaac ends up doing the same thing his father does. He ends up lying about his own wife. With being, these guys clearly love their wives, think they're beautiful, but they're afraid. They're cowards. They lie and they, they, they reject the promises of God when it comes down to their actions. And yet God still commends them for their faith. Well, and then you look at Noah. You have Noah who is uh, commended in chapter 11. And then <laughs> what does Noah do after this great faithfulness he's had for God, right? He builds the ark, takes him years to do it. His family gets on the ark. The whole world is destroyed. He gets off the ark, grows a vineyard, makes wine, and gets drunk, and both of his daughters are now pregnant. And yet Hebrews is commending him for his faith. It's I know you're feeling it. It's the most radical thing to think that God would then recommend you to look at Noah as an example. Well, what a great example. It's his faith that he's commending, not his actions. It's his faith. Uh, then, of course, you look at uh, Sarah. She, Sarah actually laughed in the presence of Jesus. Jesus was there in the form of an angel. And she heard this message and she laughed and chuckled about it, which, you know, some people could understand. But again, what is Sarah recommended for? Hebrews 11 recommends her for faith. And then, and then again, you have Jacob later on in the story. Jacob, he tricks his father. Lies to his father, lies to his brother, and tricks him into getting basically an inheritance. So he becomes now one of the most wealthiest men in the future. And that's all because he lied. And yet God recommends Jacob. It says by his faith and the promises of the Messiah, not his faithfulness, not his actions. Oh, and then you look at Moses later on in the story. In Hebrews 11 recommends Moses. Well, Moses was a murderer. And not only that, he was a horrible father. He didn't even obey the promises of God in the beginning. Uh, his wife chased him down and threatened him and said, listen, God is about to kill you, Moses, because you have not circumcised your sons. And she did it. And she got upset with him. And yet this is the guy who's leading the children of Israel out of Egypt. So when we look at these recommendations or we look at this, the hall of heroes, um, there's a reason why the author does not call them the hall of heroes. The author in chapter 12 calls them a cloud of witnesses, right? This big, huge, this big, huge mass of people 
who are a witness to what? Not their faithfulness, not their ability to save themselves or fulfill a promise. He says they're a witness to faith in the promise is what saves you, is where your hope is, is what justifies you. So the whole chapter is designed for you to start by reading this, for it by people all received their commendation. Well, does that mean, John, that we can just go live however we want because it's by faith? Well, no. If you know anything about the life of David, his sin cost him dearly. Samson, his sins cost him dearly. There is never a moment in this world where sin is a recommendation for you, ever. So please do not get me wrong where I'm saying, go live however you want, see, it doesn't matter. That's definitely not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this, our frailty is not going away. Our sinful nature is not going away until Christ comes and he renews our bodies. We have to have some sort of motivation to be able to keep fighting the flesh that we have, uh, that we have right now. We are told by Paul that our spirit fights against the flesh and the flesh against the spirit. And we're in this constant war. And when Christians lose the motivation to keep fighting, that's when we fall into hopelessness. And I know that many of you have felt these moments of hopelessness where there, there doesn't seem like there's reasons to keep fighting or reasons to keep living or even just reasons for religion because of the hopelessness. You believe your standard of living should be here, and yet you find yourself constantly decreasing going the other direction. You wonder why you don't have this upward projection of life when you feel like all you do is just kind of grappling on to the gospel as it's dragging you through your life waiting for Christ to come back. Well, most Christians feel that experience. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, do not be tempted to go back to the law. Do not be tempted to go thinking that you can hold on to your own works to somehow fix this problem that you're having. It can't be fixed by our own efforts. This is when he leads us into chapter 12, which I can't wait to get into next week. Chapter 12 is a glorious chapter talking about, okay, well, if this is true, how do we stay motivated by Christ? How do we stay motivated to keep our focus on not what we do, but who we are? Who we are is an adopted child of God who's been declared righteous, not by our own works, but by the works of Jesus Christ. So how do we do that? So I'm excited to present that to you next week, but I want to leave you with this one thought. As you struggle with your own frailty and as you struggle with being obedient, loving your neighbor, loving God, loving your family, trying to resist temptation, trying to advance the gospel, I want you to understand that God commends you, not in your actions, but God commends you in your faith. And we know that if you think that you somehow drummed up that faith, that somehow you figured it out and now you can, God can look at you and say, yes, your faith uh, is something you came up with. This is not what scripture teaches us. The Bible says that faith is a gift that's been given to us, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, so that you don't boast. So no one can ever boast. So if you have faith 
in the promise that God will justify those to whom believe in Jesus Christ. If that is your faith, that was a gift to you. And then God says, in the craziest manner, he says that he's going to commend you for that faith. I know, it's insane. And then on top of that, somehow there's going to be rewards in heaven as we faithfully believe in the promise. I don't understand how that works, but it's God just constantly drawing us along with patience and kindness and mercy. This is why Romans 2 says that the gentleness of God is supposed to lead us to repentance. God is not angry with you because you sinned. God covered your sins and now calls you to repent. This is why he says the kindness of God leads to repentance. So he says every time you sin, you have the boldness to run into the Father's presence and confess that sin immediately. Not not before you clean yourself up. You don't have to go clean yourself up, make all things right. To repent is to stop trusting that whatever it is that this is going to bring me hope or bring you satisfaction. It's to turn from that, confess that you put your hope in the wrong thing. You violated God. You violated the holiness of God. And now you ask for forgiveness and restitution. That's what life looks like. This is why David wrote Psalm 51. He felt it. And he says, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He turned from his joy of God saving him by grace in the promise. And he turned to fulfill it in the flesh. And he lost that joy because he pursued sin. And what a gracious God. He doesn't make David do some crazy act of repentance. He literally accepts David and restores the joy of his salvation. Of course, there's consequences for his sins, but not ultimately. There's physical, there's earthly, but his eternal home is secure. And that is what's most important. Well, hopefully this has been encouraging to you as it's been to me. I'm looking forward to really diving into this more. It's kind of a a hidden passage. We talk about it a lot, but yet we tend to disconnect it from its context and disconnect it from its purpose. Uh, The purpose is not to help you uh, become more faithful. The purpose is to help you trust in the promise, to continue to look at all of those And we're going to look at this next week where Paul or the writer ends up using this illustration where all of these people that he's mentioning, all the believers of the Old Testament, they're the witness of your life. They're the ones cheering you on. Don't stop. We did it. You do it. You do it by faith. And uh, it's going to be a great, great time in God's word next week. Let me pray for us. Father, we just thank you for the hope we constantly have. We can look to your consistent nature where you are the sustainer of all things. The way that you've sustained this world is also a way for us to look and say, you will sustain our salvation. Nothing is out of your control. There is no chaos that is outside of the sovereignty of your divine plan. Lord, help us to look to our trust in Christ, not our own faithfulness to find our hope this week the motivation to love, the motivation to fight back against the flesh. In Jesus' name, amen.